Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we have a special guest on the podcast. His name is Brad Hafes. He is a pastor, speaker, and mental health advocate. He's also the founder and executive director of Fresh Hope for Mental Health, and that is an international network of peer-to-peer Christian mental health support groups and resources. And he's also the author of Holding to Hope, Staying Sane While Loving Someone with a Mental Illness. And so in this particular podcast, this is one that we had to delay a couple of different times, but I wanted to make sure I talked to him because there is a lot of misconceptions about mental health, and there are a lot of misconceptions about mental health specifically in kind of the whole uh, pastorate and inside of all these people that work at churches and things like that. And you hear about burnout and you hear about these people just kind of getting mentally put out there over their skis. And we, we talk a lot about that on this particular podcast about why exactly that is. But then we get into how people of faith can talk about mental health, because there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of disinformation inside of this. There's a lot of people that think that, Hey, if you're a Christian, that you're not supposed to have any ailments, right? Especially not mental ailment and ailments, because you should just be able to pray and read the Bible and then everything be good to go. And it's not exactly that way, but it took us maybe about a half hour of this podcast before we got into that. And I was just kind of jotting down a bunch of different notes because you never really know where a conversation is going to go. But we talked about, you know, studying the Bible in general, but also studying the Bible in Hebrew and Greek. Uh, I wanted to talk to him a little bit about church hurt, but I forgot to get into that. You know, pastors that don't go to seminary versus pastors that do go to seminary. You know, how can one know that they are saved? I always kind of like to talk to pastors about that because, you know, some people's answers are fairly convoluted and others are not. You know, how do we think about belief? We talked about children and the salvation of children. Uh, But then we really got into the mental health side. But I asked him about how in our culture, we kind of default to medicine, which I've talked about here recently on the podcast, how we just default after a few minutes of conversation with somebody like, here's some SSRIs and let's just see if they work. And, you know, we talked about how that doesn't always help people. But then we talked about what they do and kind of how they they keep that going for people and what what pre-decision can do for you. That if you're having a mental health struggle or some other struggle in your life, when you pre-decide what you're going to do, how that could be beneficial for you. And, and again, we get into his story and his personal story is kind of crazy. Some of the stuff that he was going through with some of the things he was doing that he was acting out because this was a guy that his life was perfectly in shape and aligned and going in a particular direction. And then he just went off the deep end at one point. He gets into a lot of detail there, but I really, really appreciate how candid he was. He was a little bit more candid on this show than he has been on other shows. And he told me off air, it's like, yeah, you know, seemed like your audience would be able to accept most of the stuff that we talked about and how we talked about it. So. I really enjoyed my time with him. So without further ado, let's get into it. Brad Hafes, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Kyle. Now, I asked you off air how to pronounce your last name, and I think I got it right. But has there ever been somebody that just like accidentally got it right? Like here you are at a coffee shop and you give them your name and they they spell it right and say it right. Has that ever happened? Yes, but extremely rarely. And one time I preached at a church down in Florida and the guy who signed the check for me, I was the guest preacher and he gave me the check and his last name was Hafes. Okay. Well, they that we got it wrong. That would have been we a problem. We weren't related. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. For, for an uncommon last name, that's pretty interesting, but you know, so you already kind of teed it up there a little bit, Brad, but you're a professional Christian. You're a pastor. This is what you you do for a living. You've been doing this for a very, very long time, but I'm assuming when you were growing up as a little kid, maybe you wanted to be a a baseball player or a a Marine or something like that. Who the heck knows what you wanted to do? I guess, when did you kind of turn the corner and say, okay, this is not only, you know, the biggest part of my life, but this is what I want to do professionally. Well, I have to be honest all my life, even as a little kid. I just knew I was called. 
And um, there were times that I didn't want to do it because I was going to have to take Greek and Hebrew and go to school eight years after high school. You know, I'm Lutheran and there's quite a extensive education process, but um, I did it. I learned Hebrew and Greek and, well, I cried like a baby sometimes because it was so hard. But um, yeah, no, I'm not one of those guys that I just kind of knew and I was on the course, but um, my life fell apart then after being a pastor. So some things that happen to guys that uh, maybe go through difficulties long before um, coming to the Lord, mine fell apart while I was a pastor. Well, we'll get uh, more into that certainly here in a second because it's a large part of your story. But to go back to the the Greek and Hebrew thing, I know to people that are outside of the pastorate or people that are outside of church leadership or something like that, they see that as like kind of an interesting thing. But pastors aren't walking around speaking in ancient Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic or any, any of these types of things. It's just something for their own personal study. Now, so go ahead and, I guess, explain from your perspective, having done it and having uh, assuming that you would co-sign that, you know, if you're going to be a pastor, you need to have done this and you need to have gone through seminary and all those things. But why go back to that text? Why, why is not just studying oh, the, the yeah. translation of English good enough? Right. Because everything in English is just that. It's in English. There are things that can be said in both Greek and Hebrew that cannot be said in English. For instance, I'll give you two examples. One is in the first sentence of the Old Testament, where it says Elohim bara, and bara is the word to create, and it means to create from nothing. But it's a singular verb, but Elohim is a plural noun. Elohim is the word for God. And you see that you can't do that in English. And so you're picking up theology. You're picking up what was written. Uh, another one would be um, in the New Testament where it says to telestai. Um, that's a punctiliar verb. And to telestai is the word that Jesus spoke. It is finished on the cross. Well, what's interestingly interesting about a punctiliar verb is a punctiliar verb means it happened once and it can never, ever happen again. Never. And so there's just a depth in there. I don't study it for my own personal thing, but I study it so that when I'm preaching, I have depth to what I'm doing and saying. So with that in mind as well, I'm thinking about one particular example. So there's a pastor that I've talked about on my podcast recently, or I guess he used to be a pastor, Carl Lentz with Hillsong. Uh, he had a spate of interviews in a row where he was basically asked, is, is homosexuality a sin? Is, is abortion a sin? And one of the times he was asked about homosexuality being a sin, he goes, when I, and again, he's like, cool guy, do bro pastor. And he's like, you know, when I read the New Testament, I read the red letters of Jesus. Uh, he never mentions homosexuality one time. So I'm not going to mention it from the pulpit. Now, a few things are wrong with that. Number one, there aren't red letters and black letters. They're technically all red letters because if you believe in in a Trinitarian view of the Godhead, Jesus is part of the Godhead. So all of the, the words are his words. So I guess that's part of it. But then the other thing, he certainly did. It is recorded that he talked about 
uh, what would be called sexual immorality or pornea in in the original uh, Greek, as far as I understand it. And what that one word in Greek encompasses is all these other things we need to describe using the English language, which is homosexuality, sex outside of marriage, bestiality, uh, multiple sexual partner, like all these different things. And so is that another good thing for Christians to kind of understand, which is like, hey, there's a lot of value in going back to the original language because the Greek language in a lot of ways is more descriptive with less words. Yes, absolutely. And um, like I said, there's things that the Greek can say that we don't say in English in a word. You know, we have to describe it or whatever. But here's the deal with what what that pastor was really basically telling you is he believes that the the word of God is in the Bible, but not the whole Bible is the word of God. And you find two different kinds of Christians those who want to uh, justify certain ways of life in today's world, um, we'll talk about the red letters. Well, when there used to be Bibles printed, I'm sure there still are, where only the words of Jesus were in red letters. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that then says to, that somebody does not believe um, the rest of the Bible to be accurate, you know. And so you're, I find it fruitless to ever debate or argue with folks. I always ask, do you believe all of the Bible is God's word from Genesis to, to um, Revelation? Absolutely inherent, um, you know, uh, flawless, blah, blah, blah. Or do you believe that God's word is in the Bible? And um, there's a big difference. There certainly is a big difference. And that's one thing that that I remember thinking through in that particular scenario is it's like, it's a pithy statement because to be, to be honest, I love the red letters in the Bible just because it's, it's a cheat code for me as I'm reading through a passage. If I don't, if I'm turning directly to a passage and maybe it's in the middle of, of a long soliloquy that, that Jesus is speaking, it's just like, it, it just helps me get there faster, but it doesn't bother me to not see it either. And I think it was uh pastor Vody Bauckham, who was the first person that kind of said, <clears throat> who kind of said, yeah, like, Hey, if he's part of the Godhead, like this is all his words, but that kind of leads me to talk a little bit about how people study the Bible. <clears throat> because I know a lot of people hesitate and I'll, I'll speak to, about me personally. I've had in, you know entire swaths of my Christian walk where I haven't read the Bible at all. And part of it is because I can't read the Bible, Brad. I have to study it, right? And there's a major difference if you're going to read a text of any kind versus study a text, because you can't just read through it like you're reading through a novel, trying to get to the best part of the story or the climax or something like that. Mm-hmm. You have to read a sentence or two and then stop and maybe think about it, or maybe read this commentary because you have no idea what you just read. And so I think that stops a lot of Christians from actually digging into the scripture because they feel like, well, I can't just listen to the Bible. Why well, I can't just read it like I'm reading a book. I have to study it. And my God, I have so I have kids and I have a business and I have all these other different things and I got to walk the dog. Who has time to study the Bible? Do you feel like you get a lot of angst for people? Because if, if you're a professional, yeah, you can spend all the time in the world because this is what you do. And sure, go back to the Greek and figure that out. But a lot of people just get stuck in the mud. Well, I think that's why it's important to be part of a community of believers where the pastor and others are helping you understand and be able to read it and study it and knowing what's there. For instance, um, there's a there's 
the phrases son of God and son of man in the Old Testament and New Testament are used in different ways. And there's some people who believe that angels had sex with human beings in the Old Testament. And then we got these superhuman beings, et cetera. No, 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 no. That, that is the problem with having, for instance, preachers, um, you know, I'm going to say it, that have not gone and learned history and learned theology and learned the languages because just because it says son of God, you know, I have a, um, a person that's no longer in my life that kept saying to me, well, I just believe the word of God. I just believe the word of God. And I'm like, what word of God do you believe? The English or do you believe in the, the original languages and want to understand what those things are saying. So, you know, scripture interprets scripture. That's one of the hermeneutical principles. And um, in other words, it's not us who interpret it. It should be to find where this is used otherwise in or other places in scripture and then come to a consensus that it's used this way, it's used that way. It most likely means this. And, you know, um, yeah, I think, but there are some fantastic uh, uh, study Bibles out there, and I think men, um, I, I've got some men in my uh, fellowship that really are hungry for the Word. They want to know what it says, and, um, you know, like, um, for instance, people always talk about um, adult baptism, you know, and I'm like, well, that's fine. I mean, I'll I'll baptize an adult in total immersion. That's fine. But their um, babies and families were baptized on the very first day. And until the time of the Reformation, infants were always baptized. So, you know, it's like sometimes people don't know the history. They haven't thought through it. Like the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> the Bible talks about just believing. And I believe, I, I go to our county jail uh, every week and I've been developing a curriculum for them to use. And I always tell the guys, there's some faulty thinking out there about salvation. And what they think is that once you're saved, people kind of talk like, um, oh, I don't sin anymore. Or, you know, mm -hmm. sin is hardly part of my life. That's yeah. bogus bull. I mean, that, you know, um, and you said I could say anything, but I'll just say bull. Um, but uh, it, it, it's bull dung is what it is, because Paul, as he goes through his life, gets more and more descriptive about how great of sinner he is. Now, that doesn't mean he got more sinful. It means that he realized he was still sinning. Right, and that's part of the process of sanctification. Absolutely, and you're going to sin until you die. So, you know? Brad, th this brings up a couple of things. In like, we're talking about so many things that I didn't plan on, but I think this is good, and we'll get to all the other stuff that that we wanted to have you on here for. But I'm going to go back and quickly uh, talk about this before we talk about salvation. Pastors and seminary. You basically talked about there. You didn't make a declarative statement, but it seems like you would agree with the statement that you can't really be a pastor if you've not gone to seminary. 
I know that there are a lot of people that have enormous churches, enormous platforms, Mm -hmm. and they've never went to seminary. They've never been taught these other different things. And I'm somewhat sensitive to the argument that some seminaries have fallen completely off the deep end. Oh They're yeah, very yeah, liberal yeah, yeah. in their in their interpretation of the text. You can't, just uh, because they went to a seminary doesn't even mean it was a Bible believing. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, is this like a an activist seminary? Is this like cranking out activists, or is it cranking out people that are willing to equip the saints? I guess it should be. So, I, I guess you tell me, what do you think about pastors in terms of the ones that don't go to seminary? Are there things of value that we can glean from them? Because to be honest, a lot oh. of people have gained quite a bit from how I've studied the Bible and how I presented the Bible. And I haven't gone to seminary, but I'm also not a pastor and I'm not going to have to give an account to God one day for how I've shepherded a flock. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, in a sense, you probably have a flock here on the podcast. Um, It may be a flippy floppy flock, but uh, you have a flock, you know. Um, But um, here's the deal from my perspective. There are pastors who never went to the seminary who are academically they pursued the word of God. You know, you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew, but you certainly have to know how to study it. They have interlinear Bibles that give you translation and tell you things. And if a pastor hasn't gone to the seminary, as long as he's a student of the word, that's what matters. You know, I wouldn't go to a church where the pastor was not committed to the whole Bible. Yeah. and was a good student of the Word of God. Now, uh, seminary helps that if they went to a Bible-believing good seminary. It helps it a lot. But I would go to a church where a pastor had not gone to the seminary as long as I knew that he was hungry for studying, that he he wanted to get to the richness of what's there. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, again, we like our cheat codes. I just talked about red letter Bibles and all that. How It's kind of like a cheat code. You get there quicker. But a lot of people turn their brains off and they say, I go to this church. My pastor went to these seminaries. They are Bible believing conservative seminaries. And then they just take everything the pastor says at face value, even when they go outside of the dictates of scripture. And so to anybody, if you're church, the, the regardless of the background or the Vita or resume of your pastor, that doesn't mean you turn your brain off. And that doesn't mean that they are above reproach either, that they don't yep. make mistakes in how they exegete oh, something absolutely. or eisegete something or anything like that. Yep. But I did want to go back to, to this thing about salvation. So one thing that, I, that I've done, I've got a lot of friends that are in kind of the reformed Calvinist side of things. I would mm-hmm. say that I kind of tend more and lean more to, to some of those things and those understandings. Uh, there are some massive things inside of that idea theology that really bother me. Like I can't get a Calvinist to answer two questions. Number one, what did Christians do for the first 1500 years before John Calvin was born? How in the world did they get by? And the second thing is in like a sentence or less, can you tell me how someone can be saved? And I've listened, Brad, I've listened to John MacArthur, who is a lion, who is a giant. I listened to him speak for hours at this point about assurance of salvation and how one can know that they are saved and all that. And I still don't know. I still don't know what he would even say, how somebody can know that they have salvation in Christ. And again, you can get into election, you can get into all these other different things. And it's like, well, you don't need to know. You're either selected or you're not, or you're either elected or you're not. But I guess from your perspective, in your read of the Bible and in doing this for as long as you've done it, if someone were to come up and ask you, hey, I want to become a Christian, how do I do that? Again, you've already taken a shot at the sinner's prayer, which you know a lot of people, uh, again, yeah, that's not in there. But what, what would you say to that person? Well, I would say... Um, 
that first of all, if somebody wants to be a Christian, they're already there. Um, it's a gradual thing. Um, what you see in scripture is they believed on the Lord Jesus. They believed. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like flicking a light switch. It's more like a dimmer switch, you know? And um, the other thing is, is that nowhere in scripture does it say once saved, always saved. It, it, it um, and I realize that could throw a lot of people, sure. but um, in second, I believe it's second Peter. I wasn't prepared to talk it's about okay. yeah, all yeah. this, but it's either in first or second Peter where it talks about those who have lost their faith, that the punishment is worse. And um, I'd have to go back and double check what I'm saying. But my point is, I always tell the guys in jail, don't worry about whether you're saved or not, just believe. When you believe on the Lord Jesus and you believe, even if you're struggling in your life, there's forgiveness, and that forgiveness is, it. as long as you're living in faith, you're going to be saved. Um, it's, so it's not a, um, but, but it's an everyday thing. And so I think biblically, it's better to understand that once I start believing and I continue to believe, I'm saved, and there's assurance in that. I'm absolutely certain of it. But if I'm questioning my faith and I'm falling away and I'm walking away from the Lord, um, that's problematic. Um, because, see, I always said, I if I got to choose what faith I wanted to be, I always wanted to be a Presbyterian. Because if there's an election and you're either going to heaven or hell and it's a set deal, well, you can be a Presbyterian and live like hell and still get to heaven. So, so with that, with that in mind, that, that brings us so many other things, which we certainly do not have time to get into today is the word belief. Like, cause people believe things in different ways. So people believe that Metallica is the greatest rock band of all time. And they also believe in gravity. Like one thing is an opinion. They just believe it. The other mm -hmm. thing is something that is tangible that is based on a scaffolding of actual facts and truth. Right. Um, and so when, when I know people really, really get into that word belief, because it's like, I believe that Jesus, a middle Eastern Jew was killed by the Romans at the behest of the Jewish Sanhedrin was put into a tomb. And three days later, he walked out of that tomb without help. Right. Yep. And that he's also the son of God. And that the only way that we can have propitiation for our sins is because of that. That's what I believe. But some mm -hmm. people would say, well, Kyle, you just believe that intellectually because you've studied a lot of apologetics. You've studied the, the first century church. And how could it possibly make sense that this would survive in Rome if Rome was trying to squelch it unless it actually happened? How can all of these uh, apostles and disciples just march happily to their deaths, never once in recorded history saying, actually, I didn't see Jesus raised from the dead. It was all a joke. We just thought we could make some yeah. money and get some girls yeah. like I believe it intellectually, but some people would say, well, you don't believe it emotionally. You don't like believe it in your heart. Like you're not as emotive yeah. about it or something like that. And like, I, there's a lot there, you know? Yeah. I don't think you can separate all of that. I think you can overthink it. Um, if, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that is the only way to get to heaven and that you believe in him, you don't even have to believe all of the Bible to be saved. There's no passage about that, but it's believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And, you know, I think it's very important for Christians and especially men to um, say, 
All right. Somebody's telling me to believe this. Show me the Bible passage. Show me where in the Bible it says this. Show me where this is. You know, the age of accountability. Hogwash. There's not, There's no talk of it in the New Testament. Nothing like that. Um, in fact, the Bible tells us we're conceived in sin. You know, we've got a disease, you know. And um, so for me, but but here's the deal. I am really good friends with a lot of people who don't believe what I believe theologically. And I, I, you know, they love Jesus, they love his word, but they come out at a different place in what the word says. Mm-hmm. And I don't debate that. I respect it. And that's the way it is. And um, if they ask me, I'll talk about it. But otherwise, I think that a lot of denominations and a lot of people want to get into that. We're saved and no one else is saved, you know? Yeah. There's a joke that um, we used to tell as Lutherans that um, uh, I died and I went to heaven. And when I got up there, St. Peter was giving me a tour. And when we walked past one room, he said, shh, don't talk. And I said, why? And he said, because that's a Lutherans. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> hey, that's not just indicative of Lutherans. You're exactly right. right. They're like, there are many sects. Like my wife grew up small town church of Christ and they believe, uh, I mean, to a T that only people that basically go to small town conservative church of Christ and do worship their way and everything like that's it. When they talk about the yep. narrow road, they yep. think the road is church of Christ Avenue. And so it's like, I, yep. I know that the, everyone's yep. kind of has their own thing. And I know I keep going off and we're going to make this my last tangent before we get back to the main reason. This is the last I one. Like I promise. Okay. <laughs> These tangents are good, but I I just, I'm thinking about my audience and the things that you're saying and the things that they'll get mad at me for not asking you later. So we're going to talk about a small subject about children and salvation. Okay. So I know for me, having not grown up in church, having accepted Christ, as far as I know, sorry, Calvinist, uh, as a a 10th grader, you know, I'm already a teenager at that point. I'd seen a little bit of the world. I kind of knew about my own level of depravity and all that, but Ever since that time of really starting in church as a teenager, every time a child, like a three, four, five, six-year-old expresses faith in Christ or gets baptized as a profession of their faith and all that, I got, if I'm being honest, I'm fairly skeptical of that. And for me, it's because it's like, uh, that that kid doesn't even know like how to make it through the entire day without crapping their pants yet. And yet they, they've made this entire declaration about how they're putting their faith in, in a Middle Eastern Jew because of something I heard at, at Awana's or, or, you know, uh, vacation Bible school or something like that. And I, I kind of hate myself for that because it's like, who am I to say? Like, I, I'm nobody in this entire situation. Yeah. But I guess the age of accountability is worrisome to me because I do have a two-year-old and a baby that's below one year old. And if we all get in a car accident, what happens to, to James and Eli? Like what happens to my boys? Because it's like, we haven't had that gospel discussion yet. Like I can barely get them to remember the names of their favorite cartoon characters that they want so that they can tell me more easily what they want to watch or something like that. So let's talk a little bit about children and salvation and let's get into that kind of that age accountability. Like what happens to babies that die in the womb? What happens to newborns that pass away? That kind of thing. Well, first of all, I believe that God is grace. He, he, he is grace. He is love. He is forgiveness. <clears throat> there are those who would say if a baby's not baptized, the baby doesn't go to heaven. Right. You know, blah, blah, blah. I don't believe that. Um, okay. 
when children don't make those decisions by themselves, and I think the Lord in his mercy, um, you know, we we know the thief on the cross was not baptized and got into heaven. Sure. So, um, you know, now for me, how I see it is this. Um, as a Lutheran pastor, I believe in infant baptism. I could give you all kinds of arguments why, but I will reaffirm somebody's baptism that, you know, maybe they were baptized as an infant and really lived it up when they were a teen and, um, you know, they, they want a fresh start. Okay, let's do it. Let's go to a pool or a river. I've done it in a river. One of the old ladies tried to pull me down in the river when I did it. It was hilarious. <laughs> but, um, and uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it, I don't get bent out of shape about that, but how I see it from um, an infant perspective is the baptism is not our work. It is God's work. It is a sacrament in which he bestows grace and forgiveness and we're born into his family. And I didn't have anything to do with being born, and I don't think you probably did either. You know, you're, yeah. you go through your mother's womb, and ta-da, you're here. And um, now, uh, when you have a baby, you got to feed the baby, right? Mm -hmm. So I think you just feed the baby. You read the Bible with the children. You tell them about Jesus. You tell them, and what you're doing is nurturing that faith in them. And as many people know, confirmation comes along somewhere along the line. And um, and that became a farce for many because it really wasn't kids taking and owning that. Mm -hmm. But that's where they're supposed to take and say, I do believe and I'll follow the Lord even unto death, you know. Um, but I think it's a matter of just feeding your kids spiritual food, you know. And um, will God be merciful? Of course, you know. Um, I think Christians get a little too uptight about a lot of stuff, you know. Um, and I, I understand that an apologist, if you like, you know, that kind of study, um, it's very important to know the answers to some of these things and to, to understand. But the one thing... Like I said before, I believe certain things. I believe them strongly, but I don't condemn anybody that doesn't agree with me in them. You know what I'm saying? And they're my buddy. They're, yeah. they're I love them. Um, now, I have problems. You know, I can meet um, somebody that's there. There's different kinds of Lutherans, okay? And there's very liberal Lutherans. Some people call them loosely Lutheran. Um, but they don't, they see the, the word of God is in the Bible. They believe homosexuality is fine. They have homosexual pastors, um, and, um, they're pro, um, choice and all these kinds of things. Okay. Um, and they're extremely liberal. Well, I have a problem with that, even though they say they believe the same thing about baptism that I do. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd rather give me the guy who does a sinner prayer. And, um, you know, it's more like you're a fruit inspector than you are a theological inspector sometimes. Well, and, and Brad, 
that that gets into a lot of other areas. And like I said, I, I promise I was going to be the last one. We'll get into some of the meat, but I I do think we're in this era where if you're a pastor or if you're an influencer, or if you're a pod heck, podcast host or something like that, you're not allowed to not know stuff. And I always tell guys, be very open about the stuff that you don't know, that you don't yeah. have a fully formed opinion on, because what you do is you signal to other people that do know or that do have a fully formed opinion to give you that data to say, here's how you fix that. Here's yeah. how you should think about that. Here's how I think about that. And so having a little bit of humility and being like, yeah, like I just had a guy ask me off air about, about something that's very, very theological in nature. And I told him, I'm like, my first word out of my mouth was bro, I gotta be honest with you. I don't have a fully fledged opinion on that. I don't find it to be that important. Like uh, to I, be feel free to make a compelling argument to me as to why I should spend hours of my life studying whether or not I believe this or that about that one particular thing. But again, it's just kind of being humble and point yourself back a little bit, but about 25, 30 minutes ago, Brad, you, you teed this up, but you talked about how your life at one point kind of fell apart and it wasn't, bef you know, before you became a pastor, it was after you became a pastor, which I don't know if you know this. So here's some breaking news. Pastors lives are supposed to be perfect. Their marriages are supposed to be perfect. Their kids are supposed to be awesome, smart, always making good decisions. Because again, y'all are the professional Christians. You've professionally studied the book that is supposed to be the real roadmap for how we're supposed to live a good, godly, and moral life. So what the heck happened, Brad? What'd you mess up? Well, first of all, there are no professional Christians. I ref <laughs> I refuse that title. Um, well, I'm going to keep I'm, saying it just to make you uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm just as broken as everybody else and, and sometimes even more so. Well, I graduated from the seminary. I had um, always been a very upbeat, very, um, you know, positive person. My father, when I, in 1976, um, he had like a, what we called a nervous breakdown and he suffered a lot of depression. I'd never seen, my dad was kind of a man's man, ornery, um, you know, not feely touchy at all. And, um, he, um, was depressed and crying every day. I had never seen my father cry and I never saw him cry again after that. But, um, Lo and behold, he was diagnosed with um, manic depression back then. Now, I knew what that was. I knew that um, I knew about uh, him taking, you know, the medicines he took and what it took. So I never, ever, ever thought of myself as potentially having manic depression or bipolar disorder because, after all, um, I was never down. Okay. So I was always kind of ready to go, made a lot of things happen, could do more work than my staff uh, did. You know, I could do that in three days and they could in six weeks sometimes. Um, and anyway, I was, pa so I came as the associate pastor within three years. I became the senior pastor of this church and we went from 800 to 3000 in worship in about five years. And uh, we started um, preparing to move into a manufacturing plant. And, you know, I wasn't a very good Lutheran in the sense of traditional worship because we had contemporary worship. <clears throat> Mannheim Steamroller did our sound system and our lights and all this kind of stuff. All right, well, um, we had to fight the city to get that property. And I started getting really sick. And... I was acting out and doing crazy crap. I mean, 
some of the things I did was like, I would just have to drive in order to manage. I felt like I had a monster inside of me and the monster was pushing and wanted out. And um, so I would manage that monster and then I would shame myself for the things that I was doing. Like I would end up in a different city and not even remember driving there. Um, I spent money like it was going out of style. I, um, I just didn't think anything could touch me or hurt me. Um, there were times where I drove on country roads, uh, gravel roads, um, that were very hilly at night and I would turn out my car lights. I would turn off, um, you know, it was dark and I would go as fast as I could open my car door, stick my foot out the door, you name it. If there was a murder somewhere, I went to where the murder was if I heard it on the radio. So, um, you know, my wife knew something was wrong. I knew something was wrong. And we asked people for help. They didn't know what to do. And the church was the 13th fastest growing Protestant church in North America at the time. So nobody wanted to stop that growth. And they were concerned for me, but they didn't know what to do. And then one night I was going out, heading out to um, drive on those roads. I stopped at a lake where there was an outhouse to take a pee. And um, I, what I recall still to this day was that First of all, I, it was a dangerous area. I knew that, you know, that was not an area to be in. But the thrill of being in an area you shouldn't be in was right in line with having bipolar disorder. And um, so you take risks that you shouldn't take. And what I did was I, um, I saw somebody was in the doorway and it was 920 at night. So it was dark. And um, I peed uh, up against the wall of the bathroom. And I turned and left, and this undercover cop grabbed me and told me I was under arrest for masturbating in front of him for 20 seconds. Well, still to this day, I can tell you, um, I, I don't think that was true. Um, I, I was sick, and I was definitely manic. Um, that's not totally out of the norm for manic people who are not treated with their bipolar but um, that's not something I've ever struggled with. I mean, you know, in my right mind, at least, I've never struggled with that. But, um, and for 20 seconds, my doctor told me, um, Brad, if you could do that in 20 seconds, I need to see you. Um, there's an issue, you know. And um, so what happened then was it made the news and my life absolutely was torn apart and um, judged, um, and actually won a, you know, what is that called? Um, and this was in 1995, so this was many years ago. Um, I won a, you know, a retrial or whatever. It was like traffic court. There was no um, jury or anything like that. And, um, but I won because the two cops that were there, I guess, they um, contradicted each other. So um, sometimes I feel like if you've ever seen Les Miserables, mm. you know, 20 seconds of my life, 20 seconds, and I paid a price that, you know, was like I had murdered somebody. In fact, I could have uh, been drunk 
and killed somebody with my car and it probably went, I wouldn't have been judged as harshly. And um, so anyway, I had to go through many months of pain and nearly bleeding to death. And then um, lo and behold, I went to the hospital in um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I spent about three and a half weeks in their outpatient treatment and I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And um, suddenly the monster had a name. I, I, the monster had a name and there was a way to manage the monster. And so I've lived for the most part, I did have a relapse seven years later where I got some medicine goofed up and ended up in the hospital again. That time it was disturbing the peace. Um, but you know, the shaming and the, all that. So I always tell the guys in the jail, yeah, I've seen you on the news, but I've been in the news more, you know, Mm. back in the day that was very, you know, it was just very painful, but here's what I want your listeners to know out of that pain, God has redeemed the pain. He has absolutely done something that only he could do. And um, I had a lot of people speak to me after this all happened and said, someday you will reach more people than you ever would have pastoring that church, you know. And lo and behold, um, today, 15 years ago, I started a support group that I really wanted to go to. And um, because I couldn't find anything that was hope-filled and helpful, I just found people complaining and it got it made me worse. So um, what happened was then um, I started that group. Other churches were looking for groups like that. So it, we have groups all over the United States now and in 17 different countries. And um, we're in two languages and a third language is French. And um, we're, uh, the books are being translated into Japanese and Chinese and then three Indian languages. And so it's just, you know, out of a pile of dung that we create, God can take it and find a diamond in that. And no matter what you're going through, there's always hope. There is always hope. And, you know, my message to men is really, look, guys, we may think we're tough. We may think, you know, that'll never happen to me. I wouldn't let my, you know, I'd never act like that. I'd never listen. Um, when your brain isn't working properly, you're not going to act proper. Um, you know, and, um, I always say it's important to understand that your, your mind is what your brain does, but your brain's just like every other part of your body. It's just like your large intestine and it's going to go to the grave with you. When you die, your brain's going to die. It's not spiritual. And uh, the mind connects with the spirit. And uh, so you want your brain to be healthy. I think absolutely there's a lot that we talk about in terms of brain health and all that. But th- this whole area of mental health, Brad, <clears throat> it is very, very confusing to a lot of people. 
And then there are things that basically blow up people's preconceived notions. I mean, this summer we had that that enormous news out of the UK that basically the the serotonin levels being mixed up in your brain and how we can fix those with SSRIs, that that's been bogus for decades. There's no data to really show that these things really help in any way, shape or form. And it's showing that it actually does quite a bit more harm. But I do want to talk a little bit about that because I do want to talk about, you know, Fresh Hope and some of the things that you do and why that's the best way for your, uh, that you've seen to kind of help people deal with this and manage it and, re- and recover from it. But we live in an, in an era right now, I know this is going to be a shock to no one in the audience, we want the easy button for everything, especially our physical ailments, because we yep. want to go to the doctor. We want the doctor to know exactly what's wrong. And we want them to give us, you know, in an, an orange bottle with a white uh, cap on top. And I just take one of these a day for two weeks and then my problem goes away. But then we've extrapolated that out to all these other different things like, oh, I, I'm sad. I'm melancholy. I'm blue. I'm depressed. Uh, I'm whatever these things are. You go and talk to a doctor for a few minutes and they give you this incredibly powerful SSRI. And then they say, all right, let's take this for six months and then just see where we're at. It's like, see where we're at. You're claiming that my chemical, I have a chemical imbalance in my brain, but you didn't even scan my brain. Like, well, what, and you're just saying this because of, of whatever reason. So I guess talk about the, the therapeutic approach in terms of medicine that most people default to as opposed to anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very interesting that, um, people get hung up on the medicine part of it. The the reality is we're kind of in the dark ages and coming out of the dark ages with mental illness. Right. Um, yeah. We're going to know a lot more in 20 years. There's a lot more we know now. Um, the SSRIs and the other medicines, you know, I take some of those, but um, I don't take tons of them. And I'm not a walking zombie on medicine um, because... Uh, my doctor works with me on that, et cetera, et cetera. We can change our brain's chemistry by how we think and um, how we look at things. And we can detox our brains. Um, and there are some who believe in the mental health field. And I would lean this way that what causes depression in most people is stinking thinking and ruminating, where they just think the same negative things over and over and over. So for instance, we teach people, the Bible says, take captive your thinking. How do you take captive your thinking? Well, here's three ways to take captive your thinking and you have to do it. That's part of sanctification, you know, and it's going to help your brain. It's going to help your emotions. It's going to help, you know, a lot of things. Now, we don't say to people, don't take your medicine. Um, you know, we, we are, take your medicine, listen to your doctor, do it with a doctor's care, don't stop taking or whatever. But on the other hand, if you feel like you're over-medicated or you don't want to be on certain things, your doctor should be working with you and get a second opinion, you know. Um, Dr. Caroline Leaf, I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She wrote a book called Who Switched Off My Brain? And um, I've been around her. I like her a lot. I like what she says. And she talks about detoxing your brain and uh, really helping your brain chemistry. She also talks about, it's not homeopathic science. It's where they do deep research on what chemicals you might be missing that need to be there to have, you know, a balanced uh, working brain and um, compounds and, you know, 
Well, that, like my doctor has said, that would be ideal, except for um, I checked on that because I thought, oh, I'm going to go in and see. Well, um, it was $6,000 just to see the doctor. And it was going to be like another 8000 for all the tests that they would do and all that. Well, your insurance doesn't pay for that. So the system's very broken in the United States, as it is in all the places. So we really come alongside people, and we're not really about the medical part of it. That's left up to doctors and therapists. And what we're there for is to help people and bridge that gap and give them hope that you can live well in spite of having a mental health diagnosis. And um, we're doing it, you know, and um, that the research shows that when faith is involved in mental health recovery, people get better faster and they stay better longer. So I'm like um, almost 97% of the people who attend Fresh Hope who were suicidal prior to attending have not been suicidal since. And um, 80% of them that were hospitalized haven't been hospitalized since. You know, AA has understood this for years, Mm -hmm. that an alcoholic can help an alcoholic. One with learned experience can help somebody who is living the experience. So that's what we do. We're in all kinds of churches, but we also have groups for teenagers. We have um, all kinds of free resources online. And we also have a ministry for pastors and their spouses called Healing the Heart Wounds of Ministry. Uh, we kind of alluded to that before, mm-hmm. that there's a lot of pain and hurt in ministry. And pastors many times don't process it. And it comes out with them mm-hmm. acting out or not really dealing with what they need to deal with. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, uh, because you hear about pastors and you hear about burnout. And I just got to be honest, when I hear about the, these people that have kind of completely burned out, I think to myself, man, every job is hard, like almost in like in, in modernity. And it's like, you hear about these burnouts and it's just like, did, did you burn out or did you really, were you really burning the candle at both ends? Or are you just kind of maybe being a little bit weak right now? Like there's, there's a whole lot of things again, I'm, I'm fairly cynical of, but you do, you do hear about pastors and burnout. You hear about these pastors that are just saddled with this uh, tremendous amount of responsibility. Uh, they're dealing with all this anguish from their, from their people to where it's like, Hey, if something's bad that's happening to you and your life and your marriage, well, you're going and taking that to the pastor and you're dumping it on them, but you're one of like a hundred couples that are doing that to them. In addition to all the other responsibilities, in addition to all the other things. So there is a uniqueness, I guess, to the strain, but I guess I'm just confused. Like I, I, I have quite a bit of energy as a guy, like burnout's not really a thing that may even make sense to my brain. And I know I'm a little bit different in that way, but to see these pastors burning out and leaving the faith and and not just leaving the church, but leaving the faith entirely. I wonder if these are all kind of wrapped in, like, I guess, is there a one size fits all solution? Like, Hey, once a year, take a, a two month sabbatical or, you know, every sixth sermon at your church needs to be preached by somebody else. Like what could kind of help these men from being, you know, from actually yeah. burning out? I'm talking about the people that are really burning out, not just the people that got tired and, and frustrated all of a sudden. Yeah. Are there snowflakes in the ministry? Yes, there are. And, um, but I can tell you that um, there's research that says that being a pastor is right beneath being the president of the United States and um, 
The second one, I think, is first responders. You know, what what you don't know and what you don't understand is what a pastor goes through during the week. Mm-hmm. It's the untold stories that he can't tell or she can't tell. In my case, it's he. And um, so, for instance, uh, the night that I had to go and be at the hospital with a baby who was dying and the parents weren't there and the baby died, I'm dealing with that. Um, when there's a suicide and I had to go in uh, with the family and the person shot themselves in their house, I'm there. And, um, you know, I have to tell people when somebody's died in a car accident or the trauma that they feel. So pastors have a tremendous amount of secondhand trauma. And um, then we've got families just like everybody else. You know, we got all the stuff. But I'll tell you what, in today's world, people are not as kind to pastors as they were 38 years ago when I started being a pastor. The demands are unreal sometimes. And there are sheep that bite. There are people that are just downright nasty. And they don't understand. And then if you have a staff, you have, you know, you're expected to be the CEO type of person. Well, you weren't trained for that, right. you know. So I would, I would say to you, be kind, my friend, to pastors, because you don't know what you don't know. And um, it is different in that sense. Um, and everything's negative. Very yeah. little of it is ever positive. So just think what that kind of drain takes. I mean, that's a drain in and of itself. But I don't think there's one size that fits all yeah. in solving it. I think there's a lot of different things that can be done, sabbaticals, um, whatever. Right now, the research is showing that um, 48% of all pastors want to quit. And if they had a way to quit, they would. Isn't that horrible? I mean, that really, and see, the pandemic caused, it was already stressful. Sure, yeah. But the pandemic, as for all of us, it, you know, how do you do it? What do you do? And the expectations and all of that. Well, um, what we do with healing the heart wounds is we take five biblical principles and we don't teach them how to do it. We take them through doing it, like lamenting. So you've had hurt and pain in your ministry. We want you to write a lament and we're going to process it with you. Because here's the bottom line. I'm all about, if you don't deal with your stuff, your stuff deals with you. That's it. It's all of life. I don't care. And everybody's got emotional stuff. And if you think you don't, let me come and live with you for 36 hours. I have the spiritual gift of triggering people (laughs) and I'll trigger you. Um, And we'll talk about, oh, Kyle, here's an area that I can see you're just a little, you know what I'm saying? Now, let me ask you a question. How old are you? 36. Yeah. All this happened to me when I was 37. Mm. Um, And if you had heard me talk um, long before it happened, I would have said, that ain't going to ever happen to me because I've got lots of energy. I'm a pull up my boot kind of guy, you know. But we never know what life is going to hand to us. We never know where we are going to have to find out what we're really made of. You know what I'm saying? 
Um, so age, you know, says a lot. Um, we find out, you know, I had to find out what I was made of when I went through all of that. Um, I wanted to die by suicide. I wanted out. The emotional pain was so horrible. Um, you know, just what I was doing to myself. It wasn't what anybody else does, but I'm with you there. Nobody needs to burn out. Nobody needs to die of suicide. Nobody needs to have all these problems. What we need to do is learn how to process our pain. So our pain gets processed and we, we learn from it then. Well, and I think as well, Brad, something that's helpful is making sure that you have a bank account and I don't mean a literal bank account and you know, follow me for a second that you have a bank account that you can make withdrawals from when you need to. And I talk to people all the time about making deposits in the right bank account, making resilience deposits. Cause everybody likes to talk about strength, but no matter what strength's going to wane over time. If you're the world's strongest man today and the competition just ended, well, tomorrow your body's all beat up. Someone else in the world is stronger than you that day. So right. Strength is going to wane. You know, gravity is mm -hmm. undefeated. Father time is undefeated. It will always wane, but resilience is something different. And so I talk about it. It's usually easier to talk about in a sports, a term or something like that. But if you talk to anybody that has to do with, you know, sports surgery or recovery or any of those types of things, if you started out with a strong base of strength, for instance, and then you get knee surgery, well, your, your knee surgery recovery is going to be a lot quicker than somebody yep. who led a sedentary yep. life yep. and the majority of their diet is Cheetos, right? So that's just something they're making deposits. They made deposits in some cases for decades in the, the resilience of their body category or, or, you know, uh, yep. you know, account. And then when they need it, it's there. The same thing for mental resilience, the same thing for spiritual resilience. Cause guys, if something negative hasn't befallen you at this point, you are not good. You are lucky, sir. And so like, it's going to come for you. Well, Tragedy, it will happen. Right, it it's will going happen. happen. Tragedy is going to come for you. Death's going to come yep. for you. Some sort of a physical ailment, like the, the number of guys who've spent all this time on their body. And I would be one of those to, you know, to be in great shape. Well, if I suffer a, a terrible life altering injury, well, there, there's going to be some other things I'm going to have to deal with. So it's all coming for us. And have you made deposits in the right bank account to where you can pull them out when and, you need them? And that is what I would call a very proactive stance. Sure. That's a good stance to have. That's a good way to look at it. Because, it's not foolproof, but it's, you know, right, it, it helps. Right. To say, I know I have weak areas emotionally or whatever, but I'm going to deposit into my emotional account. I'm going to learn more and more about myself and how to be the healthiest I can be both spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And um, that way, when trouble hits, it's, it, you know what I'm saying, like you said, with the knee surgery, it's funny you said that because my knees are killing me these days. <laughs> and every now and then I get up and I walk like Frankenstein for about 20 seconds um, just because my knees hurt, you know. But um, the bottom line is, is that um, life is difficult. Life is not easy. And you have to have resiliency. And what better kind of resiliency than to say, the Lord God is almighty and in control. So this may be a horrible thing I'm going through, but I know God can take it and make it work for my good, Romans 8, 28. But we have a lot of doomsday thinking that goes on in, in even Christian churches where, you know, it's like, boo-hoo, this is, 
I could tell you, if you have, for instance, and there's all kinds of books I could make reference to and science research and all of that, but the, if you already have a preset mind that if something happens, that would be the worst thing in the world to ever happen. You know, like a parent could say, oh, if I ever lost one of my children, I don't think I could live with that. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? You're already telling Satan, you're already announcing to yourself yeah. that if that were to happen, I, I, I can't do it. Well, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including difficult things. And so to me, emotional health is connecting the scriptures and putting them in a practical application. And I always tell the guys in the jail, okay, what does it mean to take captive your thinking? Because if you think that your brain can be on automatic pilot, I can't let my brain be on automatic pilot because I'll always go to places I shouldn't go. Mm -hmm. And um, when you're older, it's not sex that you go to. It's I like white wedding cake. I always tell my wife, she doesn't have to worry about me being in bed with the bride. She has to worry about me being in bed with the wedding cake. (coughs) Because, you know, and so, but we can't let our brains be on automatic pilot. And I think in a lot of ways, Brad, it's about pre-deciding. I talk about pre-deciding all the time. So whenever I've helped people with, you know, uh, pornography addiction or something like that, it's like, well, pre-decide that you're not a guy that, that masturbates. So just pre-decide that, that tonight, whenever your, your kids are off at practice and your wife's gone out of town or something like that, that you're not going to do that. And, and again, there's accountability and there's filters and all these other different things. Same thing. I talk to guys that conceal carry, they, they carry a weapon, that, but they haven't pre-decided whether or not they're going to pull that out and potentially use that on somebody to save the life of somebody else or themselves. Pre-decision makes a lot of difference because you brought up something that's kind of near and dear to my heart because I'm, I'm a little bit fatalist in my thinking and my imagination. I've thought about, you know, what if my wife and my sons get taken out in a car accident or some sort of other accident or something like that. Well, what does that mean for me? Like that probably, you know, and I've thought about it intellectually. I'm like, well, that's probably it for me. Like, you know, I've, I've given enough to society and I've given enough through the podcast or whatever else that, you know what, my family's gone. So I'm gone too. And I'm not the only guy that thinks that way. You want to hop back in here. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, of course we all think that way. It isn't um, wait, it is, what, real it quick, is. Brad, real quick. It, it's it's interesting too when guys think about that. And I've talked about this on the show before that whenever I've thought about suicide before, I was thinking about it intellectually, not emotionally. Not like my life's so bad, it's so terrible, I just can't hang on. And then I think about grabbing the pistol. It's always like, man, I'm worth this amount of money dead. You know, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to make that amount of money while I'm alive. Like things seem pretty terrible right now. Like it's always Men been are in very a- much that way when they think okay. about suicide. Yeah. That is the way. And men are more likely, if they're suicidal, if they're honestly suicidal, they are more likely to die by suicide because they don't talk about it. They Mm -hmm. figure it out. They analyze it. It becomes very um, analytical to them. And it's a logical decision many times. It's not an emotional um, decision. But but here's the deal with um, we all, we are all broken in our thinking. And when you think about where does sin reside, when, when sin came into this world, where is the battleground for it? It's all in the mind. It's all here. Um, because what our body does, we choose to do from here. And, um, you know, and 
I always tell pastors that want to take mental health or emotional health issues and say it's all demonic. Everything is demonic that's broken. I mean, any illness is demonic. Um, so at least be consistent. If you're not going to go to the doctor for mental health, don't go to the doctor for your broken leg. Don't go to the doctor for your cancer. And and guys, you got to get over it. Your brain is a muscle or an organ, just like everything else, and uh, care for it. Um, and I think what you're saying, I really like, Kyle, the idea that you're saying predetermined, mm -hmm. if this happens, I will do this or whatever. And you're building up resiliency then. I was part of the Dark Horse Project from Harvard. Um, they studied people that normally don't come back from things that other people go through. Okay. So most people would not be like myself. And they wanted to know why or how that happened. How could I be that resilient? And for me, and I think it's the reason I'm on the website, but I'm not in the book. And I think because it was all faith for me, it was just knowing um, it, it, it doesn't mean that I didn't think negatively, but I just knew deep in my most inner core that God will get me through it. I will get through it. I think that's that's a great thing, and, and on the predecision side, on the spiritual side, is that is like predecide. I know it sounds weird. Predecide that God's going to have something for you on the other end of whatever this this thing is. Because isn't it amazing when you predecide something that your brain kind of shifts to that? So let's talk about you know what what you brought up. So let's say you predecide that you're not going to eat sweets for. 90 days or just say something like that. Well, guess what? When you go to the wedding and you see the white wedding cake and you see everything else, all the other accoutrements, you've pre-decided like I'm a person for the next 90 days that doesn't eat that, but that does yep. bleed over into every area of life. Like, Hey, I'm going to pre-decide the next time I'm really, really angry about something that the first thing I'm going to do is not yell and scream and cuss, but it's going to be to pull out the Bible. You got, you know, five different Bible apps on your phone. You probably got a stack of them in your office that you need to blow the dust off and, and check out a little bit. But again, pre-decision really helps out with, with a lot of things. Yes, because that, that, is taking captive your thinking. That's taking captive your behavior. And that's what the Bible teaches us to do. You know, and uh, Caroline Leaf says, the interesting thing is, is now that with all this brain neuroscience um, research on the brain, we know that it changes the brain chemistry. When you think negative things, they connect with every single negative thing in your brain. And when you... Um, think something over and over. It's like an LP record that gets stuck. The needle gets stuck and the brain has a hard time getting out of that. There's practical ways to do that. And that is taking captive your thinking. And here's the really cool thing. When you do that, and when you do it long enough, your brain chemistry changes. And on the uh, brain scans, you can see the green. It, it moves from being thorny bushes to being, um, it looks more like something that's flourishing. And so, you know, and by the way, talking about research and all that kind of thing, Dr. Amen out in Southern California is doing brain scans on people with mental health issues. And I think he's pushing the boundary for us to get it so it's more scientifically, so they're able to, because it is hit and miss. Yeah, 
it's hit and miss, and there will certainly be more that we'll learn. And, and guys, you keep bringing it up, but it's 2 Corinthians 10, 5, and that's that's something that I memorized a while ago, but we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Take captive every thought and make it accountable to Christ. Like, And I know we're getting very practical here, but when I used to you know, struggle with pornography and masturbation back in my 20s, like those types of things, it's it's amazing what happens to your erection when you start quoting scripture. It's amazing. Like it's an amazing <laughs> thing, you know, whenever you're you're thinking about doing this thing that you know is not honoring to God yep. and that is sinful and all these different things, but then you you just say a scripture that you've memorized. And yep. so like 2 Corinthians 10, 5, like that's a big one. Like are, is this thought that I'm having, it, could I put it through the filter of Christ and come out on the other end and still have the same thought? I've heard other people talk about whispers before. Like we all hear these whispers and it's like, where is this whisper coming from? Is it a, you know, a light whisper that comes from God or is it a dark whisper that comes from Satan? Well, it's like, we'll put it through a rubric of the, of the Bible, of the gospel, of God's word, of, of a prayer time or anything like that. When you come out on the other end, like, are you still supposed to think that? Cause if the thought is, man, I really, really hate my wife and can't believe I ever got married and kids were the worst decision ever and everything's bad and blah, blah, blah. Well, you put that through the filter of the knowledge of God like that. You're not going to be anywhere close to the same thing on the back end. But I I, I know that we could go all day and we both uh, got things to do. I, I really appreciate you letting us go down all these different rabbit trails. Obviously, we're going to have, uh you know, the Fresh Hope website and your books there in our show notes. But that's all for yeah. me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Well, just know this, guys. There's never a situation that is without hope. That hope is when you can't see a way forward. And our God is a God who makes ways through the desert. And there's always hope. And it's sure and certain, and you can trust him for it. I'm living proof. My whole life is living proof of that. Not that I chose to be that proof. It's just what God can do. Because I never thought that my worst part of my life was going to become a survival manual for other people and liquid gold for the kingdom of God. Absolutely. That's a great word to end on. Brad Haves, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed my time with Brad Hafes. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So if you want to learn more about what he's doing with the organization Fresh Hope, we've got that website there. And then we've got a, also got two links to his Amazon books. So you can check those out. That's Holding to Hope and the other book, Fresh Hope. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to in Info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>